Welcome to Inside the War Room. Ryan Ray here, as always. A little bit of programming notes. We are slowly but surely moving back to YouTube. Yeah, I know. I'm not on YouTube, I said. But we are going to be putting clips out and some full-length interviews in the coming weeks and months. So we'd appreciate your support over there. Of course, warroommedia.com is where the show notes, the newsletter, and where you can support the show is. That will not change. Okay, my guest today is Frank DeConnor. Dr. Frank DeCotter, I should say, and is the author of The People's Trilogy, which is a series of books that document the impact of communism on the lives of ordinary people in China. The current book we're talking about today is China After Mao, The Rise of the Super Superpower. We'll link to all of these books in the show notes so you can check them out. Now, let's get to my conversation with Frank. Frank, welcome to The War Room. Thank you for having me. Okay, so you have um, a book that's just out, but you have a lot of books on China, and it's kind of convenient timing the day we're recording this, because uh, Xi Jinping just had his big ceremony over the weekend, and obviously your new book's about Mao, as I said in the introduction, so maybe pull back the curtain. What got you interested in uh, China, for se, per se, uh, as, as, a, as a topic of study? Um, that's a very interesting question, because I think that if you look at those who work in the China field, so to speak, you will see that there are all sorts of motivations. Um, there might be people who were attracted, let's say, by the communist revolution. Um, there might be those who think it's rather exotic. And of course, there are people who have a personal link, either if they are from Europe or the United States or even Japan, because their you know, grandfather was a missionary or because... They, they lived there for a period of time. In my case, it was sheer pragmatism in that I did a degree in history and also studied Russian literature and Chinese as a minor. I, I just enjoyed modern languages. And there was no scholarship available to go to the Soviet Union at the time. This was uh, the early 1980s. So I went to the People's Republic of China instead. Uh, that's all there is to it. <laughs> You just kind of got you got sucked in after that, huh? Well, yes and no. Again, you know, I'm Dutch. I'm very pragmatic. <laughs> Much as I was very pragmatic about the scholarship going to China for a good two years, um, I also realized uh, when I was there that when it comes to the history of modern China. Um, there really wasn't an awful lot compared to what um, my fellow students or colleagues were writing about the history of 20th century uh, Russia, for instance, uh, never mind United States, Europe, England. There seemed to be very little. Um, so again, rather a pragmatic decision. Although in the beginning, I should say, we're talking really about the 90, uh, late 1980s, 1990s. I uh, started my PhD uh, in London in 1987, uh, all of this was really based on uh, pre-revolution, pre-1949, before Chairman Mao and his uh, guerrilla fighters managed to conquer China in 1949. Again, very pragmatic. I didn't believe you could study anything post-49 without access to good material. The access on the Republican era, as we call the period from 1911 to 49, uh, became very much available from the late 1980s onwards, and I was in there like a parrot. I waited for a very long time before, um, if you wish, crossing that border into the People's Republic of China as a historian. In fact, I waited till the archives became available, which happened at, during the late 1990s. So one of the things that I've wondered about and asked historians about um, writing history, especially like China or if you're in communist Russia, how, how do you evaluate determining what is pure propaganda versus what is the actual history? Well, that actually links up very nicely with uh, what I said about my rather pragmatic attitude. As I was a student in the mid-1980s, I went there from 85 to 87 as a student, I realized as a student of history of the Soviet Union that as in the Soviet Union, you couldn't really base what you, uh, what you wrote or researched on newspapers. 
There were, of course, people in the China field, Ezra Vogel is one name, Harvard University, uh, who did use newspapers to talk about China after 1949. I thought it was inconceivable, which is why I focused for the first 20 years of my career on the Republican period. Only when the archives became available did I become um, interested um, in writing about post-49. The, the reason is very simple. It is a one-party state, like the Soviet Union, uh, like North Korea. It is a one-party state after 49. All information is controlled and very much um, uh, in the absence of freedom of speech, what you read in the People's Republic of China is by definition propaganda. Uh, you cannot rely on government reports, government statistics, uh, government publications. Um, so then the question really was at the time, how do you get around it? Well, with the archives, because a party, a one-party state must know what happens. It, it will project, it will spend enormous resources from 49 to this very day or at any period during the Soviet Union or any other one-party state will will spend enormous resources into projecting an image of power, success, and stability. When you read a, a newspaper in the People's Republic of China or the ex-Soviet Union, it is never about what is happening on the ground. It is what should be happening. It's always about the future rather than the present. It's about the world as it should be rather than the world as it is, nonetheless. Any party member, any party official, uh, whether as the head of a village or the leadership in Beijing, must know what is happening. So there are, if you wish, two parallel systems. One is the propaganda system, and the other one is a system uh, in in which inspection teams are sent down to find out what is happening. Uh, in the case of my last book, China After Mao, we always wonder what the debt is, how much debt has been accumulating. Now, these are always uh, very vague guesses, but if you get into the archives, in particular archives of the, the central bank, then you will find that they send huge teams, inspection teams in the 1980s, 90s, uh, turn of the century, my book stops in 2012, as you know, Huge teams are sent in there to find out what is happening in, let's say, a particular county in uh, Hubei province. So in one case, there is a report that looks at all the cadres in one county in, I believe it was Hubei province. I may be wrong. Maybe it was Hunan. Uh, and they discover it was Hubei province. They discover that um, on average, each party member has simply entered the bank and taken loans without any justification equivalent to the salary of a worker for a full year, an annual salary. And then the report says, what do they do with this money? Um, the inspection team says they gamble it. They pay for weddings. They build themselves a new house. Um, now, this might seem like an isolated report, but then there are other ones uh, which are also very interesting at the top level leadership, where a year later, this report uh, dates from, from 86, 87. By 1988, Zhao Ziyang, the man in charge, the number two at this particular point in time, uh, has an, 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 an emergency meeting because the bank of agriculture in the countryside uh, is bankrupt. The state can no longer pay its villages, which are contracted to make deliveries of grain, timber, cotton, uh, all sorts of primary materials. The Bank of Agriculture, which has to pay them, is no longer able to do so, and they issue the farmers with IOUs. So on the one hand, very detailed reports on what is happening on the ground. And then on the other hand, of course, you get to look behind the scenes and see what the leadership actually says. You get minutes of very important top leadership meetings uh, into which these reports feed. So to put it quite slightly differently, you get to see the machinery underneath that shiny surface. Interesting. Okay. And so going through this process, as, as we mentioned, the new book is China After Mao, perhaps in you know, a minute or two, kind of compare and contrast, you know, Mao, obviously we kind of have a, a general thesis, but but what would be different about after Mao? And so kind of maybe who was Mao to kind of reset the table so we can talk about post-Mao life? Well, it, it's a very 
difficult, complex question. And you have to remember that when we talk about Lenin, Stalin, Khrushchev, all the way down to Brezhnev, not to mention Gorbachev and the Soviet Union, um, we're talking about the very different context. The, the, the Soviet Union under Khrushchev is not the Soviet Union of the 1930s and the brutal purges under Stalin. What I'm trying to say here is that you must bear in mind that one-party states change over time. They're not frozen in time. So it is not exactly surprising that the China of Deng Xiaoping or Jiang Zemin or even Xi Jinping today is, is quite different from what we had in the 1950s. Nothing is frozen in time. Now, then the question really is, what are the differences and what are the similarities? Now, the differences really are are quite striking, and so are the similarities. So it's just a matter of balance, right? What is the economy under Mao Zedong? It, It is a pretty classic Stalinist model in the sense that it is collectivized, and increasingly so from 1958 onwards, when hundreds of millions of villagers in the countryside are herded into giant collectives called people's communes. In the people's communes, um, very little private property remains. Everything is, as the name indicates, collectivized. In other words, the farmers must follow orders from a party member as to what they do all day long. They become state employees. The land is not theirs. Their tools are not theirs. In some cases, even cooking utensils belong to collective dormitories. It's very much the same in the cities, of course. The state decides who should produce what, and who will sell it at what price? In other words, in a normal economy, somebody might decide to make shoes. In the case of the People's Republic of China under Mao, the state decides which factory will make shoes, what size shoes, what color, what shape, how they will distribute it, what ordinary people will pay for a pair of shoes. Um, that of course, is no longer the case at all. Very gradually, after Mao, under Deng Xiaoping, the last uh, 30, 40 years, that collectivized economy has been dismantled. So it would seem from afar that instead of a plan, instead of a collectivized economy, what we have now is a market economy, is something we might even call capitalism. But that, unfortunately, is not the case at all. So here I will go into the continuities. And what are the continuities? Well, first of all, I think, as we all well know, the very Leninist principle uh, of a monopoly over power, in other words, the commitment to maintaining a firm control over power, uh, has not evaporated after Mao. In fact, it has been reinforced To put it slightly differently, at no point after Mao dies in 1976 is the leadership um, committed to introducing the separation of powers with checks and balances, uh, opposition parties, freedom of speech, an independent judicial uh, system. On the contrary, they attack it time and again and reassert time and again their commitment to a Leninist monopoly over power. In other words, uphold the Communist Party of China is one of those cardinal principles that they proclaimed from 1981 onwards, in fact, written into the Constitution. Um, That's one continuity. The other one is much more tricky, and that is a commitment to a very Marxist principle. Uh, Despite all the appearances to the contrary, This party remains committed to the public ownership of what Marx referred to uh, in a slightly uh, jargonistic way as the means of production, quote unquote. Now, what are the means of production? Um, That is really everything that goes into the production process. Let's say your shoe factory uh, will need leather. These are raw materials. Uh, It will need energy to operate the factory. It will need labor. It will need land for its own factory, etc., etc. Now, in pretty much every case, the means of production to this very day 
continue to belong to the state. The land, for instance, belongs to the state. Uh, capital belongs to state banks, most of it, or controlled directly, indirectly by state banks. Energy very much is controlled by the state. Labor is very much unfree, does not have the rights to establish unions, um, and clearly strikes um, were written out of the Constitution again in 1981, 1982. Uh, in other words, at any one point, the state can decide to prop up an enterprise or have it closed down by intervening in the distribution of uh, these state assets. So what I'm trying to say here is that while it might seem that the planned economy, the collectivized economy has, has been abandoned, nonetheless, if anything, the party has been able to, uh, to consolidate its grip on the commanding heights of the economy. In other words, from 1976, when the chairman dies till now, what we have seen is, on the one hand, a move away from the collectivized economy, yet a very firm commitment to the Marxist principle of control over the means of production. So what does it mean? It means that if you, as a foreigner, set up a factory in China, the land will never belong to you. Capital uh, will never belong to you. Raw materials uh, belong to the state. You are entirely dependent on the state for you to run your enterprise. And what it also means is that the state enterprise opposite the road from your factory uh, will have all sorts of subsidies, hidden or otherwise, which makes competition somewhat difficult. It, it's interesting to hear you break that down because if you think about um, over just the past few years, you'll see someone like a Jack Ma who you know, accumulates a ton of wealth, obviously, and then he kind of bucks the system and the system's like, oh, yeah, just so we're clear, this is not the U.S. You know, the billionaires, they don't get to say what they want to. And then Jack Ma kind of all of a sudden he's he's kind of in hiding and he's not seen from and Alibaba's investigated. And, and so it's it's. It's a different feel, but the state has, it seems, I don't know if allowed is the right word, but allowed, promoted, whatever you want to phrase that, um, a mass influx of wealth to build up a middle class. But now they're trying to manage that, as you say, it seems differently. And so it's the same feel, but but different, it, I think is kind of what you're what you're getting at, if I understand it. And that's what, what I've observed, especially with some of the more high profile people in China. Right. So this is a very interesting example. Jack Ma is a member of the Communist Party of China. When uh, this became public, some foreigners were surprised by it. But of course, anyone who runs anything of any importance in the People's Republic of China is by definition a party member. Whether well, you're a professor of history in Shanghai, many of whom I greatly respect, or whether it is the manager of a large enterprise. So this is the whole point. It is not that private property does not exist. It is not that one is not allowed to build up large amounts of wealth, but it is that you must have links with the party. In fact, it would be much better for you to become a party member. You must support its policies you must establish a party cell inside your enterprise, whether you like it or not, and that party committee will make all major decisions, whether you like it or not. And the Constitution, while it protects, has started recently protecting some private property, non nonetheless does not have an independent judicial system which can stand up for you. So you could wake up, as Jack Ma did, or, and others do occasionally, you might wake up and discover that you are no longer really in charge. In fact, you might wake up and discover that you are under arrest and all your assets now belong to the state. Let me go a little bit more into detail. By the turn of the millennium in the year 2000, it is Jiang Zemin, who insists that the party must control the private sector. 
and that private enterprises must establish a party cell. That policy starts in the year 2000, expands, and already by the year 2005, I think, the, the numbers are, I'm speaking at the top of my head, the numbers are in the book, by 2005, so 96%, 96% of the assets of the 500 largest companies in China belong to the state. So that leaves about 4% for your so-called private sector. Now, you've got to bear in mind, if Jack Ma belongs to those 4% back in 2004, 2005, um, you've got to bear in mind uh, that it is not only a very small percentage, uh, but one which may actually not be private in the way that we understand it. We use terms all the time that we think we understand. Um, private is one of them. State is another one. Capitalism is one. The rule of law. We use all sorts of GDP. We use all sorts of terms when it comes to democracies, but also when it comes to the People's Republic of China or other one-party states. But they don't mean the same thing. They simply don't mean the same thing. So as far as I'm concerned, if you must have a party committee, uh, then it is difficult for me to see how a private enterprise can really be private. If you cannot defend your status through an independent judicial system with freedom of speech. And so help me understand, because uh, I think you're, you're dead on that we have to be careful whether we're examining China or the U S or wherever that, that, that nothing's frozen. Things are moving ahead, uh, whether for better or for worse. Um, but there's, you know, if you, okay, I know you've been in China, obviously, but for the listeners, if you go to China, there's pictures of Mao, right? And there's talk about Mao. Um, so how is it that uh, the, the CCP is able to, um, call back to Mao, push forward? And does the, does the average citizen understand these nuanced differences that you're, 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 um, appealing to it because at least in the West, because I'm, I'm trying to go with the defining terms in the West, we hear a lot about, Hey, we're going back to this, or this is how it was. And we're trying to restore that. And if you look at how it plays out practically, it's rarely the, is the case that we're actually going back to what we did. We're, we're modifying it. So in China, when there's appeal to maybe this historical um, foundation, um, do, do most people stop and go, Hmm, or at least do you get the sense that people are like, yeah, this is not actually what it was before, whether they think it's better or not, or is it kind of, a collectivist feel of yes, we're we're staying true to our foundational roots. Well, again, it, it's a very uh, complex question. Um, but first of all, you asked me to to speculate about what ordinary people in China uh, think. I don't know. It's a dictatorship. I don't know what they think. If somebody tells you that ninety five percent of the people in China approve Xi Jinping, I would say, how would you know? Were, were, were there free elections? I don't think so. Are there opinion polls that are conducted freely and openly? I don't think so. If you're a journalist and you publish something negative, uh, you will end up in jail. And a journalist, of course, frequently is a state employee. So the point I'm trying to make here is that while we don't know very much about ordinary people think, it is very difficult to imagine that a single one of them does not understand the circumstances of their own existence, namely that the party is all-powerful and there is no opposition party. There is no independent judicial system. You cannot say what you want to say freely in public. You must be careful. That doesn't mean that it is the same as, let's say, the Cultural Revolution under Chairman Mao, uh, but it clearly is a situation in which both the monopoly over power and the commanding heights of the economy uh, are controlled by the party. Everybody knows that very well. So is this going back to the Mao years? Well, no, not really. Nothing ever goes back. Uh, I said earlier on that I'm Dutch and I'm very pragmatic. Of course, most people are very pragmatic. Communist parties are very pragmatic. We always think that communism or Marxism is some sort of very rigid ideology. It is not. 
if you are committed, as I said, from a Marxist point of view, to state control of the means of production, you can play with that quite a bit. You could allow private enterprises to thrive for a certain period of time before you clamp down. You could allow farmers, as happens after the death of Chairman Mao in 1976, to begin cultivating the land on their own simply because the land doesn't belong to them and you can always take it back. There are leases that last for about 15 years and must then be renewed. Um, So it goes on and on and on. So underneath all that complexity, there's a very very simple principle, which is uh, control over the means of production and control over politics. That goes all the way back till 49. That's the continuity. Now, is the PRC deliberately going back to the Mao era. Well, you got to look at this <laughs> from a historical point of view. When Hua Guofeng, Deng Xiaoping, in the years after the death of Mao in 76, come to power, Hua Guofeng is an intermediary figure. Deng Xiaoping is the one uh, who will uh, very much be in charge for the, for the next decade or more. Uh, both of them actually look back. They don't want to go back to the Cultural Revolution, which was a horrendous attack on party members with purges throughout the higher echelons of the party. Uh, most most of these leaders uh, were put under house arrest or suffered in one way or another from the Cultural Revolution. They don't want to go back to Mao's Great Famine, 1958 to 62, when tens of millions of people died of starvation. Uh, What they want is go back to the 1950s. That, for them, is the golden age, when the party had its prestige and was very much in control. Deng Xiaoping says it in the middle of the 1980s. He says, we need another 10 years to get back to the 1950s. (laughs) So that's really really the goal, is to to rebuild a country which is uh, economically powerful and in which the party has much more clouts. And, And that's pretty much... That has been the, the, the direction of the People's Republic of China since 76, and that's very much where we are now. What Xi Jinping is doing today would simply not have been possible by his predecessors because it didn't have the economic clout to do it, and it didn't have the technology, the surveillance to, to do it. China did not become a surveillance state under Xi Jinping. It was already one um, during the Beijing Olympics in 2008 under Hu Jintao in the following years, uh, over the following four years, to be precise, 2008 to 2012, um, China does become very much an entrenched surveillance state with more cameras than anywhere else on planet Earth per, per capita. So it, all along the goal has has been more control, not less. And, and that surely is the continuity. What difference is there between Mao and, and the post-Mao era um, in how Mao would use outside threats to kind of rally support, even when things are bad, um, he might use a you know a strike on Taiwan to, to kind of distract from people starving. Is that is that a tactic that we see uh, deployed in the post Mao era? And if so, in the similar way, is it different? How does that work itself out? Well, if, I think you've answered the question by coming up with the example of Taiwan. You're talking about the, the Taiwan Strait crisis uh, when Mao fires a number of missiles. Uh, actually, sorry, not missiles, but fires fires a number of um, you know shots at Kimoi Island, which belongs to Taiwan, and creates a crisis. Um, now, as you very well know, uh, there have been similar crises all along. Um, so there are two different points in your question. One is very specifically the Taiwan issue. The other one is the use of external threats. So let me turn to the first issue first, Taiwan. At no point after 1949 has a leader not committed himself fully to recovering, quote, unquote, Taiwan. you got to remember 1949, the communist uh, uh, conquer power, the red flag, goes up in Beijing over the Forbidden City, and Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalists um, are defeated, the ones supported by uh, not just uh, the United States, but by the free world. You've got to remember Chiang Kai-shek is one of the, the four greats during the Second World War, uh, is an ally of, of, of the democracies. Chiang Kai-shek has to flee to Taiwan. 
Um, so clearly, Mao sees his enemy uh, across the Taiwan Strait on Taiwan is determined to dislodge him. Uh, they see, the leadership sees Taiwan as the last, if you wish, uh, remnant of the nationalist troops that must embrace the motherland at one point in future. So none of the successive leaders after Mao, whether it is Deng Xiaoping or whether it is Xi Jinping to this day, renounces the use of force to do so. Strategically, let me put it slightly differently, from the moment that Chiang Kai-shek in 49 crosses uh, the, the sea and establishes himself in Taiwan, Taiwan is seen strategically as a huge flagship from which the imperialist camp, quote-unquote, this is the vocabulary used not just under Mao, but to this very day, which the imperialist camp, which means basically uh, the democracies, the democratic world, Japan, Europe, United States, others, uh, from which the imperialist camp could launch an attack on the People's Republic of China, a lot of missiles onto Beijing, Shanghai, major cities. Just imagine um, that the Soviet Union would control all of Cuba. You remember there was an incident like that. <laughs> and that the Soviet Union, if it still were around today, would be able to control all of Cuba uh, and, and hence threaten the United States. It would be uh, strategically uh, entirely unacceptable. And that's the point of view from Beijing, that Taiwan is the biggest flagship carrier around there. And it is in the hands of the United States and other members of the imperialist camp. So it's constantly seen as a threat. Uh, in that sense, it must one day uh, rejoin the motherland, quote, unquote. The other point you made is the use of an external threat to rally the troops and the population uh, inside. Well, that is a constant of any dictatorship. Any good dictator uh, will try to deflect uh, domestic problems uh, by pointing at some sort of external threat. Putin is doing it today. So does the PRC, not to mention North Korea. It is a constant when it comes to one-party states. And it's very difficult for local populations, whether well, it's the Russians today under Putin, or, or whether it is North Koreans uh, to, to, to today to actually get access to information which might contradict the idea that there is some sort of threat from enemies, either NATO or the imperialist camp uh, or South Korea and its allies in the case of North Korea. So it's, it's a constant and it's a very, of course, dangerous game to play a time and again uh, after the death of Mao in 1976, right, the 80s, 90s, time and again, uh, the regime tries to, to build up patriotism, instill patriotic values, and portray Japan, United States, Europe as real or potential enemies. And of course, it has an effect in that occasionally you will no longer be able to control your message and a large portion of the population will will demand that you take more forceful measures. Of course, which proportion of the population, we don't know. This is a propaganda state. It's a very dangerous game. It's basically playing with fire and that's what we have right now, not just in the case of the PRC, but as you know, also with North Korea and Russia. It, it seems to me, since you brought North Korea... Um, and you're you're the expert here on this stuff, so I'm curious. It seems to me that North Korea, if you're going to say um, good dictator in the sense of they're, they're effective at what they do, so not obviously good morally speaking, um, has been the best at controlling the outside narrative so that they're cut off the most, they're isolated the most, they control the narrative the most. Um, whereas China goes to this period of opening up, if you will, um, and now we'll see what happens, but now they're kind of rolling things back. And I have to wonder um, if the North Koreans are looking at them going, yeah, we, we could have told you that was going to happen. Because to your point about controlling the narrative, um, it, it seems that regimes like the North Koreans, like the CCP, 
the thing that they're most concerned about is the narrative actually more than just about anything else, because if they can't control the narrative, um, then they can't control anything. And so do you agree with this assessment that the North Koreans are, 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 are more effective at controlling it? And the second thing would be is, do you also agree that the thing that these regimes are most concerned with is more than anything else uh, is just controlling freedom of speech, freedom of thought, however you want to phrase that? Well, it, it's a, it's a very interesting question to, to start with the end. A dictator is concerned most of all with his own destiny, the fate of his family, then possibly the fate of his party, and only then the fate of the country in that particular order. In other words, these regimes will do whatever it takes to stay in power because the moment they fall, they realize that um, it won't go all too well. Um, there are plenty, of course, of, of examples here when um, Stalin finds out what happened to Hitler, when, in fact, uh, Mussolini is hung upside down from a girder in a public place uh, in Italy in 1945. Uh, all these are examples of what might happen to you if you're a dictator. Uh, Gaddafi is yet another one. Uh, so what I'm trying to say here is that the leadership, the 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 man, these are frequently man, in charge, have amassed great amounts of power and also money and their families. And that's what they are concerned about. So it's not just ideology, so to speak, or just power for the sake of power. Once you step up into a dictatorship, there's no stepping down. You have too many enemies. You must stay up there, or at the very least, make sure that the party uh, that got you there remains in power. That's the logic of it. Now, the other aspect of your question um, North Korea, it's very interesting. First of all, you said that China has had its era of opening up. Um, this is true, but you got to remember that the opening up was also was always very relative. You, you must remember that Deng Xiaoping did not hesitate to send in 100,000 troops and 200 tanks to crush ordinary people in Beijing in June 1989. You, you must remember that at no point did the party hesitate to lock up intellectuals who were calling for the separation of power. Uh, Liu Xiaobo, the Nobel Prize, is a good example. He went in and out of jail and finally died behind bars. There are many others like him. There are constant, constant harassment and arrest of people who overstep the line. This was true for not just the 1980s, culminating in 1989, but also for the 90s, and, you know, the first decade under Hu Jintao until Xi Jinping stepped in. There's a continuity there. It is true. It is all relative. You could do things and read things and say things in Shanghai in, uh, let's say, 1998 or 2007 that you couldn't after 2008, never mind 2012 or today. All of that is very true. But it is simply wrong to think that people at any one point could just travel freely, speak freely and uh, set up a business freely in the People's Republic of China. It's a misconception. Now, back to North Korea. I think for a very long time, as China observers, uh, we have seen, portrayed, imagined North Korea as a sort of... Um, museum as a sort of a country where there has been no reform and opening up, uh, a, a sort of throwback to a Stalinist, Maoist past. Um, but I think not only is that wrong, um, I also think that the point of view of Beijing is very different. I think there's a very good chance that North Korea in Beijing represents not the past, but the future. A pretty thoroughly ensconced regime, an entrenched security apparatus, a sophisticated surveillance state, and borders which are pretty strictly controlled, including, of course, the information that can flow in and out. Hmm. That would be 
It's interesting because my next question was going to be kind of along those lines, which is you have Mao, you have life after Mao, and we're three rulers after Mao. Is it right? Three? Yep. Yeah. Okay. What? So in, in your book stops, I think in 2012. So what can we formulate, if anything, about um, the three rulers that we've had post Mao and what that might tell us about the future? You've, you seem to touch on it. I'm curious, is that is that because it's been a, um, you kind of had the, the relativistic, the faux reopening, if you will, um, to now we're starting to see things tighten back down? Is it been that this has been in the CCP literature all these years and we just kind of miss it in the West? What, why do you feel that's where we're heading? Well, it's both. In, in, in other words, the key point of the book is that Xi Jinping is not a departure from the norm. He's a culmination of changes that have been made since 1976. There is a widespread belief, whether it is businessman here in this country, the United States of America or Europe, and you know, vision shared by China observers, there's a, 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 an idea that if only Xi Jinping could just leave, could we just go back to pre-Xi Jinping, then things would be great. Well, the point I'm trying to make is they weren't all that great, and they were getting worse and worse. This is a, is a cumulative process, not a sort of difference uh, in kind. These are differences in degree. So even before 2012, you had many of the issues um, that we have discussed, uh, uh, you know, state control over the means of production, uh, subsidies, control uh, of what can be said, uh, lawyers sent to jail. Liu Xiaobo, of course, is put in jail well before 2012. So all, all, all of that is there. Um, but the difference, I think, is just the way we look at it. By we, I mean not me personally. When I was a an undergraduate student uh, at the University of Geneva, I actually read the Constitution of the People's Republic of China. And it says very clearly in 1981, 1982, the four cardinal principles. What are these four cardinal principles? It's very odd that I have to repeat this time and again, even to some of my professional China watchers. The four cardinal principles are, in the Constitution, uphold the rule of the Communist Party, uphold the socialist way, uphold the dictatorship of the proletariat, uphold... Marxism, Leninism, and Mao Zedong thought. Now, the usual reaction is just to scoff and think, well, they have to say that, they have to write that. And I think that summarizes, uh, that summarizes the problem. It doesn't matter how often these leaders from 1976 onwards will tell you we are not in favor of the separation of powers. We will uphold the socialist way. We are a dictatorship of the proletariat. We are not in favor of the private sector. It doesn't matter how often they say it, whether Deng Xiaoping says it. Zhao Ziyang himself said it in 1987 before he was purged after the, the massacre in Tiananmen Square. Jiang Zemin made it crystal clear. All of them say so. It is in the constitution, but no, nobody will listen. Americans in particular not to mention Europeans, Germans, always think they know better, always think that whatever is being said, they don't really mean it. They are on the way to democracy. They will have a free and open market economy. Let's help them get there. What is the result? Well, take the example of the Germans. They are dependent on oil from Russia, and uh, they are dependent on the People's Republic of China for trade. Wonderful. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting because one of the things with China watchers um, that, that that I find striking is um, they will point to you know China's commitment to maybe the uh, the Paris Accords or or some initiative here or some initiative here, and they'll say, well, we know that the Chinese are going to stick to these things because you know they're forward thinkers, they're long term planners. Uh, this, that, and the other, and therefore they're not going to, you know, the U.S., however, is changing leaders every four or eight years, and you can't know, we break treaties. And and I find that interesting because watching China is not a professional China watcher like someone like yourself is. Watching them, uh, I find it that they, they, they're like most nations, especially nations red like that, they're, they're very much in the self-interest. And so 
Um, I, I'm not sure how much you can project on what they will do in the future as far as international obligations go. But one thing I, I do want to get your opinion on here as we're wrapping up, can, if they, if, they, if they go to kind of a North Korean model, the, the only thing that strikes me about that is the biggest difference between now and Mao is, it seems, the wealth of the middle class. Now, I'm not sure that they could go to a North Korea style um, without a lot of major concessions, and so I don't know how you get there, and keep their middle class happy. How, how do you think they can thread that needle? Or how might they well, thread that needle? To, to start with the, the last part of your question, there's no such thing as a middle class. It's one of these terms we use to describe something. It is not to say that there are a great many people in the cities of China, certainly not the countryside, in the cities, uh, whether it's Shanghai or it's Beijing, Tianjin, you name it, who are doing very well, but they tend to either uh, belong uh, to the party or be heavily dependent on party members. In other words, I am the chauffeur of an important party member, or I work for the family of uh, an important party member, or I'm the daughter of a party member. So in that sense, of course, there's great wealth. But what you must understand is that the when it comes to the overall distribution of wealth, now this may sound striking to you, um, but uh, it, it is what characterizes the People's Republic of China today, never mind North Korea and the future. What characterizes the distribution of wealth is that in the People's Republic of China, the household share of gross domestic product, GDP, is the lowest of any country in modern history. So let that one sink in. In other words, ordinary households get a very small percentage, smaller than anywhere else, of uh, economic growth. Most of the wealth goes towards the state. And those who have links to the state do rather well. So I wouldn't call it a middle class. A middle class implies something growing from below. I would call it a rather large number. I'm not going to put a figure on it. Maybe it's 20%, 25 30 you name it. And people who do or have done rather well. But all of them are no longer doing all that well, including, of course, very powerful party members. So th this is a big question mark there uh, into which we, we can't go. This is about the future, not about the past. Now, the other point um, I have forgotten, <laughs> you have to refresh my memory. What is the question you asked? Yeah, well, I was, I was talking about um, how can the party um, keep... So do you, if you, however you want to phrase it, middle class or, or whatever you want to phrase, um, it would seem that there's a decent amount of people who are living wealthier than they were 40 years ago. Um, yes. And so if there's you no go, doubt. yeah, so however you want to phrase it, middle class, whatever you, whatever you want to call it. Um, if you go to a North Korean style regime, it would seem yeah. that that would put huge economic strain on the economy because we see North Korea's economy, it's terrible. How can they keep people content going in a trajectory that could push them back closer to where they were instead of where they're at? I don't, I don't, that, to me, that's the, that's the rub that, that, that I have with, um, I'm not saying that they won't do it. I just don't know how they could pull it off. Right. So your, your question is that regardless of how we refer um, to the people who've done best out of the last 30, 40 years, um, Nonetheless, overall, the population as a whole is incomparably better off than it was, for instance, um, during the Great Leap Forward when tens of millions were starved to death. Right. It's enormous. The, the differences are huge. People have been, uh, have been able to claim back basic freedoms and can get on with it most of the time. There's no doubt about that. Um, this is, of course, true for a great many parts of the world. The world is just economically a very different place now than it was 30, 40 years ago. China is no different. Nonetheless, um, how, how will people across the social spectrum cope with a downturn? Well, my answer would be, I don't know. I'm not a futurologist. <laughs> um, but you've got to remember um, that um, one-party regimes um, really... No, I mean, let me rephrase it. A one-party regime will not see a 
recession as some sort of pretext to loosen up. It, it, it is determined to keep its grip of power. And if, if, if that means lower living standards for people, well, it won't be the first time. We've seen it many times, and not just in the PRC, uh, also in the Soviet Union. So I, I don't think this is going to be a major issue. What, you, what you're pointing out is very interesting. You, you're pointing at something new, that from 1976 onwards, a great number of people across the social spectrum did think, did see their living standards improve. It varied enormously. For the countryside, there was improvement in the in the 1980s. This pretty much comes to an end around about 1986. Even by the turn of the millennium, a great many people in the countryside live in, in misery. And Li Keqiang only recently pointed out that the majority of the population in the countryside or elsewhere does not earn an awful lot of money. Um, but the point is, overall, there was this belief that things would be getting better, that reform and opening up was an improvement, that the future would be better, that future generations would be better off than this generation. That, that belief is, is gone. What sort of implications does it have? Well, I would think that would pretty much uh, accelerate, accelerate rather than slow down the desire of the party to enhance its grip on the population. It would enhance its willingness to wall in this country and its population. Interesting. See, um, the thing that, the the, the variable that I have a hard time with, and just because I'm not a futurist either, is going, okay, in the first time in modern history, um, we're going to see this on play. And the difference about modern history versus you know, 1940s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s is in China, if you're sophisticated enough, you can figure out what's going on out there. In the Russia, in, you know, Russia in the 80s, you didn't know what was going on in the U.S. You just kind of had to believe. Well, now you can poke around. You can figure it out. And the, the ability to control, it's, it's just not as easy as it was, especially um, for people who will have experienced um, Western thought and ideas and and be curious. And I get what percentage of the population is interested. I don't know. I'm like you. I don't simply think that, um, you know, I think your point earlier was quite proper, which is we can't say what the general population is, but, you know, but so that doesn't mean that they want a liberal Western democracy. They might like what they have. We don't know. Um, but trying to control the narrative um, would seem to be harder for where, where China's at now, but it doesn't mean that they can't because people might be willing to, to go along with it. Okay. I know it's the clock here. Um, we're going to link to your book. Where else do you want us to send people to? Your website, social media? Well, my website, if um, I, may, I may not always be able to maintain it all that well, but it's reasonably informative. Otherwise, I would say Amazon.com. <laughs> okay. We will link to your website in the show notes for listeners. Of course, your books. Um, thank you so much for your time today. Enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Okay. Join the conversation at warroommedia.com. This one is not on YouTube, but we do have some later this week that will be. And with that, we'll talk to you tomorrow.